For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Governor Stitt kicked off the 2021 legislative session on Monday, laying out his priorities for the year. In his third State of the State address, the governor praised his pro-business approach to the COVID-19 pandemic and criticized schools for not holding in-person classrooms. Neva, what did you think of the speech? Well, I think it was a uh, typical state of the state. I think when you look at uh, the governor, as you say, in his third annual uh, state of the state, he basically was just uh, reiterating what he believes his successes have been, laying out what he describes as his people's agenda, uh, wanting a united uh, very unified attempt at policy goals that they're going to put forth from his administration in this session. But all in all, I think it was really uh, kind of the prelim to uh, the governor kicking off his reelection campaign. I think we're probably just weeks away from seeing uh, seeing that materialize or still uh, while he's not formally said uh, that um, he's he's going to uh, seek reelection. I think everyone and certainly inside the Capitol believes that to be the case. And I think when you um, when you really see the, the the tone he set, it was it was um, not a surprise that now we have a change in administration in Washington and the governor uh, lashed out at the Biden administration. He he clearly is comfortable kind of taking uh, kind of taking uh, the um, the new administration head on on some of the issues that uh, that he wants to uh, talk about. And of course, I think in terms of uh, the big picture issues of education and things that uh, that are always on the forefront of any governor's agenda, uh, it'll be interesting to see with the bills that are uh, that are the ones that they intend to really press on what kind of consensus they can get, even in a supermajority Republican legislature, where 80 percent of the House and Senate now are led by, uh, you know, Republican leadership. So it is the opportunity uh, in a year that's not an election year to begin to to push some of these big items. And I think uh, uh, the number one item probably that sets up for a fight, and we can talk more about it, uh, is uh, is the whole issue of managed care, which I think is something that uh, will be one of the more fascinating things to watch in this legislative session. Ryan. Well, and, and picking up on managed care, uh, you know, I've been out at the Capitol since the state of the state. And when, when you talk to folks in that building uh, and ask for their reaction to the state of the state, uh, almost across the board, uh, what you hear uh, is people commenting on the silence, the, the total lack of applause uh, that Governor Stitt received whenever he mentioned managed care in his state of the state address. Um, I mean, this is an issue that could fracture legislative caucuses. Uh, it, it could be an issue that fractures any sort of relationship between the House and the Senate, regardless of the fact that you've got Republican supermajorities there. This could fracture uh, the ability for the legislature to work with the governor over the course of this session. When he mentioned that, I mean, you, you typically get even some courteous applause from members of your own party, but this was just crickets and uh, everybody noticed it. It was it was the one real takeaway from Capital Insiders uh, from the speech. I mean, everything else uh, that he said, I think was overshadowed by the reception that the legislature had to, to that one comment. And then when you look at the rest of the speech, 
it did seem to be a bit disconnected from reality. Uh, you know, Neva mentioned that it was a typical state of the state address. Well, we're in very uh, atypical times, right? I mean, this this is an extraordinary moment for the state of Oklahoma, and instead of uh, you know recognizing the challenges that the state has has faced, what we really saw was. I do think a, a prelude to uh, a campaign announcement uh, you know, where he's going to kick off his reelection campaign. And he made the case for his response, his administration's response to, to COVID-19. And you know, whether you agree with the governor's response or not, um, I, I do think that some of his comments about opportunities that are coming out of COVID-19 are a bit Pollyannish. I think that he overlooked a lot of the criticisms, not from Democrats, but from his own party and the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency that released a, a, a really damning report uh, on the governor's uh, uh, actions over the last several months and, and from the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and then, you know, I think the other disconnect in reality uh, is that he talked a lot about unity. Um, and, you know, that ignored the fact that the last legislative ended with his veto of uh, several key budget bills being overridden by the legislature and a very you know, toxic relationship between the legislature and the executive branch. And then the, the lack of unity that the governor has created with Oklahoma's tribal governments. And so um, I, I think that he, he said a lot of things in his speech, but the actions that he's had up to this point and even you know, some of the actions that may come after this speech you know, seem to set the stage for more conflict this legislative session. So let's dig a little you deeper. Know, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Neva. Go ahead. Well, I, one, going back to the, the whole issue of the uh, managed care, I, I thought it was interesting that in the very first days uh, of the session, you had the House and Senate Appropriations Subcommittees that um, handle the health care authority's budget, the, the entity that uh, all of this evolves out of. And, and the Senate subcommittee Monday, the House subcommittee met on Tuesday, and it and it was clear. I mean, you had members uh, of both of those subcommittees openly expressing opposition to the managed care proposal, um, you know, and going so far as to talk about the fact that they felt like there hadn't been enough legislative input before final decisions were made. And all of this with the backdrop, if we remember that we talked about the healthcare authority and their special meeting, they they accomplished this um, kind of moving forward on managed care on a five to four vote. And when you look at that, the five appointees that voted in favor were the governor's appointees, and and then you had four appoint, then you had uh, four that were opposed that were legislative appointees. So uh, the stage is clearly set, and with this with this significant an issue, I mean, you're talking about something um, where the four insurance companies that have been contracts have been let to manage. Um, uh, health care the medic for Medicaid recipients uh, you're talking about 2.2 billion dollars potentially is the price tag on all of this so even in a year when when the budget forecast seems to be um, uh, better than than many previous years it's still a big big question that I think will spill over into a lot of other a lot of other debates and a lot of other issues this session. Mm-hmm. Well, as mentioned, the governor's state of the state address did focus on making sure kids return to in-person classes despite the current crisis. On the same day as the speech, the state's final only virtual school district, Tulsa Public Schools, announced it was planning to start physical learning soon. Ryan, do you think Tulsa officials were politically pressured by the governor here? I don't think so. I mean, Tulsa's stood its ground uh, against the governor. And it's strange for the governor, particularly from a party who's, uh, political platform for as long as 
I can remember, has included local control, you know, allowing local government officials, local elected officials to make decisions that were best for their community, to see the governor of that party uh, you know, pick a fight, not just in the, the last several months, but in the state of the state address, uh, to use that platform to go after a particular school district is is very strange. Uh, and, and I think that it undermines this, this idea that I, I think is really important uh, still to, you know, even in spite of the governor's uh, efforts to, to undermine that within his own party, I, th- I think local control is still a very key component to the Republican Party platform for a lot of Republicans out there. So they've got to be scratching their head about why is the governor at the state level uh, coming in here and telling us how to do our business? Um, you know, the the governor uh, with with the education, with even within his own uh, statewide elected officials on, on the education front and his state of the state address talked about ghost students, you know, students that are, that are counted as part of a school district's enrollment uh, because they use a three-year rolling average, the number of uh, enrolled students for funding, for the funding formula. Um, even his, uh, even, even the state secretary of education, who the state superintendent of education, who comes from his own party, uh, has come out and said, we don't really know, we're interested to figure out where he comes up with these numbers. I mean, those, those numbers seem to come out of thin air. Nobody seems to understand where, where that comes from. Uh, and he's having these conversations without bringing in a lot of stakeholders uh, to to move these to move these you know big policy agendas through the legislature. And I, I think if you're going to get something like that across the finish line, where you're going to make a, a huge change to the state's funding formula, you, you'd think that you would want at least the education leaders from your own party to be on board with you from the outset. Neva. Well, and I think uh, getting the education leaders on board probably is uh, uh, a, a pretty tough task, I think, probably in the governor's mind. I mean, let's let's face it, the, the continued uh, conversation that the superintendent uh, may, in fact, be a primary opponent uh, uh, next year is certainly one thing that uh, I think factors into this. And I think the other thing, when we talk about this funding formula, uh, you've got, um, this is something that every school district, every superintendent, uh, as well as uh, folks outside that want to see reform measures really take place this year in education. Uh, and many Republicans who have been pushing pushing these items for years now see this as kind of their their big opportunity to try to make some make some headway. You have, I mean, you have this natural push back and forth, particularly on the on the funding formula of how these funds are are distributed and and in the in the wake of the pandemic and this rolling average piece to it, then how the pandemic and the fact that kids weren't in school uh, most of last year um, and the the school year, all of these things become very confusing. And for legislators um, that have to go back to their districts and, and deal with these questions and deal with um, uh, d- deal with the reality of trying to figure out is this good or bad. Um, is is going to be i think it's going to be a big big question the the other thing that of course has been uh, out there in conversation from a legislative perspective is open transfer and uh, that's something that has a, a lot of appeal in certain uh, uh, sectors both uh, among you know parents and and uh, and 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 folks that want to see again reform in this area and believe that this is something that uh, indeed the time has come there's the obvious pushback that comes from that and many questions that also still arise that um, many feel haven't been adequately answered. But 
going back to the state of the state and the fact that the governor took head on the superintendent of uh, Tulsa Public Schools, and she in turn took on the governor and called him a bully and said that he was, uh, you know, basically deflecting his own failed leadership. I mean, this kind of uh, exchange and her news conference an hour before the state of the state where she basically, uh, you know, kind of lays down the gauntlet to the governor and state leaders to uh, begin vaccinating teachers and and school staff uh, and and trying to throw that into the mix uh, as part of the phase two uh, rollout on the on the vaccine. Um, it just makes for a lot of confusion, a lot of conversation. At the end of all of this, the dust has got to settle and lawmakers are going to have to settle in and start dealing with the real nuts and bolts of these questions. Ryan, do you think there's also maybe a disconnect when you've got the governor saying that kids have to be in classrooms to learn? And yet the one of the biggest pushes right now is Epic Virtual Charter School. I mean, I think it's a huge disconnect. You know, the, the governor uh, always uh, issues the caveat that uh, the virtual school is great for some students, but for most students, in-person instruction is ideal. And 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 frankly, I think that that's uh, a concept that most uh, Oklahomans agree with, regardless of what party you're in. And uh, I think everybody agrees that we would love to be in a position where if you want to send your kids to in-person school, that you can do so. Uh, and uh, if you think that that's the best option for them, that, that ought to be an option for you. But I also think that most Oklahomans also recognize that they want to do that in a way that's safe for teachers, uh, safe for support staff uh, that at those schools, um, and, and do it in a way that recognizes that we, we are seeing uh, an evolving uh, um, way that this virus is presenting itself, in particular with younger people. Uh, and and you know, we can talk about vaccines all day long and, and vaccines are going to be critically important uh, to getting us uh, back to some sense of normal. Uh, but we're not going to we're not going to get there overnight. And if our kids can't get vaccinated, which you know, right now they're they're not eligible. Most of most of our kids aren't eligible for those vaccines. You know, what does that mean, especially as there are growing concerns about what the you know new variants of the virus mean for for younger Oklahomans? In the state of the state address, the governor called the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in McGirt versus Oklahoma as the most pressing issue facing our state's future. He said hundreds of criminal cases are getting dismissed and urged tribal officials to come to the table to help fix the problem. Neva, how big of a problem is this? Well, it's a huge problem, and I think it's one that ultimately we'll probably see the new administration as well as Congress uh, uh, probably take some role in. I mean, there's all kinds of conversation I hear, at least in uh, the legal community, about the fact that whether uh, whether a McGirt court is created uh, with ju more judges to handle the enormous caseload that's going to uh, come about as a result of this uh, Supreme Court uh, decision or whether they just uh, add another uh, add another district in the in Oklahoma that uh, is uh, pretty much just defined to uh, handle handle much of what will come out of McGirt. Mm -hmm. um, there's no question that there there are there are a lot of things that are kind of in play here, not to not the least of which is the fact that because we've had a change in administration, the U.S. attorneys offices will begin to uh, change over. We'll have new U.S. attorneys uh, uh, that will be uh, uh, advanced by the Biden administration, uh, Senate confirmation moving through, you know, moving through this moving through this process. So but there there is without question, I mean, so so many uh, so many issues still to uh, uh, still to 
have to be resolved out of this 5-4 uh, Supreme Court decision uh, that Justice Gurich uh, wrote the wrote the opinion on, which basically declares that uh, lands remain within uh, Indian reservations and the impact on this in terms of the crimes committed by tribal uh, members on the reservations and giving the tribes and the uh, the federal jurisdiction rather than the state uh, the role in this. I mean, it is, um, I, I think it's going to be one of the, you know, one of the most significant things to address from a um, from a legal perspective in the state of Oklahoma over the next several years. And so the governor's right. I mean, there, there there's a reason to uh, be concerned. There's a reason to want to see some things happen. Uh, I'm not sure he is going to be in the position to be the one to drive the drive the, uh, the drive the train on this one. Ryan. Well, and I, I think that he's that there are there are necessary responses from from Congress. And if you look at uh, in, re, in response to the Supreme Court's decision and if you look at statements that, that have come out of uh, the Cherokee Nation uh, and the Chickasaw Nation, they, they've reflected as such. I mean, in particular with criminal jurisdiction, you know, they are going to Congress and asking Congress to to come up with a uh, shared sovereignty, shared jurisdiction um, uh, power uh, for tribes and states to enter into so that you know there can be a more streamlined way for the tribes and the state to share criminal jurisdiction over certain cases. Now, I think that the governor's claim that cases are being dismissed and there's this there's this threat to kind of the way of life as we know it in Oklahoma uh, is is really the the chicken little uh, argument that the state advanced before the Supreme Court and that the majority of the Supreme Court didn't buy. Uh, you know. Sure, cases are being dismissed in Oklahoma uh, that were prosecuted by the state of Oklahoma because it turns out the state of Oklahoma did not have jurisdiction. And that doesn't mean that they're being dismissed and, and prisons are just opening the doors and, and letting people you know, you know, run free. Uh, you know, they're, they're being dismissed and then they're immediately being re-prosecuted in federal court uh, or retried in federal court. And you know, I think you know, Neva's right. There's going to be uh, a, a tremendous burden on both U.S. attorney's offices uh, and federal courts uh, and, and probably every district in the state of Oklahoma at some point, you know, dealing with uh, these consequences. But it's not something that's impossible to deal with. You know, we, we have a we have a clear roadmap for how to handle this. And the, the idea that the, the tribes would intervene uh, in a way and exercise jurisdiction in a way or try to use the McGirt decision to enlarge their power over uh, you know, non-tribal members in the state of Oklahoma uh, such that it would disrupt business uh, is just, you know, kind of flies in the face of reason. Uh, you know, tribes, uh, tribal governments in the state of Oklahoma do well when the state does well and vice versa. Now, I, I will say, you know, the governor's probably not the one to lead on this because he has picked so many unnecessary fights with tribal governments in the state of Oklahoma. He has worked, uh, he has just worked tirelessly uh, to attack the, the basic concept of, of tribal sovereignty uh, in Oklahoma. And he made this really you know, Pollyannish comment uh, in a state of the state address where he said he wanted to get back to the, the kind of unity uh, that the state of Oklahoma and its tribal governments have enjoyed since 1907. Uh, and if you look back at the, the history uh, of the state of Oklahoma, the federal government uh, and the tribal nations that, that were either removed here or existed here well before the United States uh, or the state of Oklahoma ever existed, Going back in time really isn't what we ought to be doing here. Uh, you know, we, we need a productive relationship between the state of Oklahoma and the tribal governments that have sovereign jurisdiction over a number of issues, and in particular over their reservation territory here in Oklahoma. And 
I, I don't see the governor leading that. I don't know who that is right now, but it's an important conversation. It'll probably be led by members of the, the Oklahoma congressional delegation, because ultimately, as, as the Supreme Court decision in McGirt said, it's this is a conversation that has to be resolved by the tribes and has to be resolved by Congress. And the state uh, at this point plays an ancillary role, if any. One of the issues not mentioned in the state of the state address was corrections reform. Despite this, lawmakers have several bills focusing on different areas of corrections. Ryan, did, did, you, did the omission surprise you? It's, it's really surprising. The, the governor, um, you know, I, I talk a lot on here about the governor's missed opportunities and the unnecessary fights that he picks. If, if in the last, if over the course of his tenure, there's one historic shining example of what it means to be a leader, to work with a bipartisan group of organizations and legislators. It's criminal justice reform. You know, the governor signed a bill that led to the largest single release in, in a day uh, in our nation's history from prison of, of former inmates. I mean, that's what, what an incredible part of your record. I mean, if he doesn't do anything else between now and the time that he leaves, you know, 20, 30 years from now, that's probably going to be one of the you know, top two or three things that the governor is known for. And whenever he did that, I think that he recognized, uh, he said as much, that there was a lot of work to do. And criminal justice reform is one of the, the handful of issues out at the Capitol that, that still uh, generates a lot of bipartisan support. And there's still a lot to do. Uh, you know, Senator, I was about to say Representative Shane Jett, because you know, when I served with him, he was Representative Shane Jett. Now he's Senator Shane Jett. He's got a he's got a bill, and I think that there's another one out there like this as well that has been trying you know, has been working its way through the legislature for years now. Maybe this is the year for it that would create jury sentencing reform in the state of Oklahoma and give Oklahoma jurors the power to be able to sentence people to uh, non incarceration punishments. So you know, right now, if if you take your case all the way to a jury trial. You know, the, the ability to get an alternative for incarceration is off the table. It's either you're you're found innocent. And if you're found guilty, the only thing that the jury has in front of it is, is prison. Uh, mm -hmm. That's that we're one of three states, if not the only state in the country in the country that does that. And I think it's a big explanation for uh, the drivers of mass incarceration in Oklahoma. So there are opportunities for the governor to talk about this. And I, I, yeah, I think that this is a, an issue that he ought to pivot back to and be a leader because, uh, he's, he's done it in the past. He's realized some success from it. There's no reason to run away from it in 2021. Neva. Well, I, I don't know that he necessarily appears to be running away from it. I think it's just, it is clearly not at the forefront of his agenda this year. And again, I think that may speak as much to the fact that he's looking now beyond even this session, looking to a campaign, looking to uh, make a uh, uh, an effort to be reelected for four more years, and you read the you know you read the political tea leaves, both in terms of you, you, the possible uh, prospect of a primary challenge, as well as looking at where the where the public sentiment is on the on on this issue. And I think when you, um, you know, reflect back to uh, last November and state question, I mean, state, state question 805 was rejected by uh, Oklahomans. And so even though there's a similar bill uh, that uh, is uh, Senate Bill 704 that will kind of move through the process here, whether or not there's a real um, 
a political appetite to kind of continue to move at at what was fairly mock speed for a while in criminal justice reform. I think what we're seeing is a is a slowdown, recalibrating, uh, looking uh, looking at issues that have merit. I mean, there are a number of bills out there that certainly are going to be addressed that are criminal justice, correction reform measures. And all of that with the backdrop of the fact that Oklahoma has reduced its uh, prison population by 22 percent in the last four years. So I I think that uh, I think we'll just have to wait and see. But this is uh, in the overarching conversation of corrections reform. I think uh, it's absent from the governor's agenda this year. uh, And we'll just have to see if it comes back uh, in some different fashion next year. Well, Aniva, you're right. It, it, you know, it, you're you're totally right. It's not fair of me to, to characterize the governor's silence as, as running away from the issue. I, you know, that's that's an unfair characterization. Um, you know, so you know, to, I'll, I'll I'll walk that one back. Uh, I, I but I I do think that the governor needs to embrace this more. And, and I I get 805 failed. And if you look back to uh, you know 2017, the year after uh, state questions 780 and 781 passed. You know, the the reformers then and I was part of that group, we had to fight to protect 780 and 781 uh, from legislative efforts to, to undermine that and repeal it uh, through legislative fiat. Uh, you know, they, they weren't successful at doing that, but we lost a year of advocacy. And I think with perhaps with the state question 805 defeat, there's a, a sense that, you know, things have got to cool down and recalibrate. That's I'm hearing that a lot at the Capitol as well. Uh, you know, that being said, there's so much urgency to this issue that it's difficult to just sit on your hands. And uh, I'm glad that there's still bills out there that would do a lot. You know, Representative Logan Phillips has a uh, piece of legislation that would prohibit people being revoked on parole for uh, uh, having a medical marijuana card or testing positive for marijuana and a drug screen if they've got a medical marijuana card. I mean, there's these there are these things that kind of around the edges aren't the the huge you know, sweeping reforms like uh, the pre-tri- the pretrial justice reform and bail reform um, uh, that we saw a couple of years ago, but there are still critically important steps that the legislature can take this year, and they would all benefit if the governor could you know, vocally get behind them. And Eva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. And programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.